If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Our guest today is Wayne Hipsley. Wayne provides legal expertise about horse safety and equine welfare on an international level. Through his expertise in horse behaviour and ethical practices, Wayne's also a licensed judge. He's judged horse shows. He's judged shows in 10 foreign countries. He's a university professor in equine studies and taught seminars from form to function all over the world. He's busy. He lives horses. He probably the best thing I like is that he currently owns, trains and enjoys horses and we're using him today a little bit as a preventative so that we're going to talk to him about what we can do to stop anything legal happening to us, how we can prevent it. How are you today, Wayne? I'm good. I'm good. I hope things are good in your part of the world. They are. They are. Yeah. Wayne, just thinking about, you know, we normally start off with a favourite quote. And then I'd like to sort of talk about how you, you know, started off with the legal expertise. But tell us about your favourite quote, first of all. Oh, it's uh, it's obviously the uh, quote that uh, a lot of people favour, and that is the uh, outside of the horse is good for the inside of man. Mm. I find that to be very true and more as I go through life that I am able to, you know, spend time with horses and you know, the frustration of a day or whatever just kind of melts away when I do that. So it's all good. You know, it's well-meant expression. I think that's why we do it, isn't it? You know, we yeah. because we all know, even though we may not know the saying, we all know that when we're with horses, we can feel better. We're a different person. Yep. Well, we are. And, you know, right now I have to spend more time trail riding and working young horses and, you know, when you get on an animal's back, you tend to be able to forget the stress of the rest of the world and you can focus on that animal. And that in itself is incredible, I mm. think, it, you know, as far as uh, human transformation goes. And I think it's good for people. Yep. Yep. Wayne, normally I would ask you about how you started with horses, but actually I will ask you a little bit about that, you know, just so we've got that background before we start to talk about your expertise. So did you start off, because you went to university and and started off with animal science straight up, but how did you start with horses? What are your first memories there? Well, that's, that's pretty easy. My family started breeding Arabian horses in 1952, But prior to that, my dad came home from World War II with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did all kinds of things to him chemically, electronically, and everything else and really couldn't fix his problem. And the doctor finally said to him one day, he says, you need a hobby. What what do you like to do? And my dad says, I like horseback riding. And the next thing I know, there are pictures of me 
four or five years old sitting on horses that my dad had. And mm. It all kind of evolved from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what about a career with horses? Did you, you know, because you would have had horses then through your childhood. Were you always going to have a career with horses? Yeah, you know, it's really funny. I always wanted to be uh, a veterinarian and realized early on in my college career that I that wasn't going to be realistic for me. You know, I followed a path uh, in, in my animal science background that led me to a horse physician teaching as a part of the faculty at the University of Massachusetts after I graduated with an undergraduate degree. And just one thing led to another. It was, it was an amazing progression of transitions from the life in a university to working for a breed society for a number of years and then being able to go back and show and train horses and you know, then go back and actually work on my advanced degree, finish it, and start working on a PhD, which I didn't finish. But you know, life gets in the way of that sometimes. But the whole the whole theme of everything that I ever did involved horses at at Mm. some level or another, whether it was teaching academically or whether it was training and showing or working for breed associations such as the Arabian Horse Registry and the American Morgan Horse Association and so forth. So all of those, you know, just kind of blended together in a wonderful way. And there was no plan or any strategy. It just just (laughs) happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you about the best thing about working in the horse industry, but I think you've said that, haven't you? You know, when you said about the outside of the horse is good for the inside of the man. Anything else yeah. you'd like to add about the best thing? That, you know, pretty much sums it up. I, yeah. The one thing that I see today is I see a tremendous number of amateurs involved mm-hmm. in the horse industry today. And, you know, I guess... My family and I and a number of other people were in that same position many years ago, over 40 years ago, and and yet I see a whole different attitude and an ability to be able to advance yourself in today's world because of the computer, because of lots of different methods of teaching, mm-hmm. and yet the true skills of horsemanship are something that are learned with you know, a lot of work with horses and it's just not on a weekend. And, and I don't see, I don't see the number of professionals in many different areas of the horse industry that I once did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If someone's going to work with horses and they want to have it as their career, what sort of core skills and character traits do you think that they need to have? Well, that's really a tough question to answer because I, having been in a university environment teaching university students, I found that a lot of them don't want to understand the basics. They want <laughs> to get a, an academic degree, and then they either want to manage a farm or ride and train horses. And there's the basic philosophy of understanding the behavior of a horse. The understanding how to handle horses is something that you acquire over a lifetime of experience. And I find that many young people today that don't want to pay their dues and work their way up through the ranks. You know, there's that program for working students in different areas of the world. And in its original intention, I think it, it was a wonderful opportunity for young people to get a start in the business to build a foundation. 
But unfortunately, a lot of these working student programs have turned into uh, less learning and more labor. And uh, I find that students get discouraged with that. But I think that we have to spend more time learning the root nature of the horse, the the basics Mm -hmm. about the horse, and then build from there. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. What, um, you know, because you'd said about the mentorship program, what's the best solution then so that young people coming through can get a really good understanding of the horse and can work with other people to give them that understanding so it's not just trial and error. They can sort of build on others' experience. What do you think is the best solution there? I'm not sure that there's one big best solution, but I know that if I look back on my life, I even worked part-time at a standard bread track where trotters and pacers mm-hmm. as a groom. And, I, you know, I only did that part-time, but I learned a tremendous amount by doing that and made a little bit of money. And so every job that I ever had focused towards the horse industry. And, and if I was to give advice to anyone, it would be the same thing. Is find yourself... Uh, in a volunteer situation where you can be perhaps uh, helping out in a disability writing program or if there's some other type of activity that's horse-related that you can get involved with as a volunteer. You know, all of those types of experiences, the more hours you put in, the more you learn. And unfortunately, you don't reap the benefits of that instantaneously. It takes a number of years for all of that to accumulate. And this is going to sound sort of strange, but you're building a a resume. You're building an internal resume of your own personal knowledge and your own personal abilities. And as a result of it, it makes you much better in decision-making and dealing with horse-related issues, regardless whether you are a trainer or whether you're managing the breeding farm or running a public riding stable, giving riding lessons, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, you know, one experience builds on the other is what has been my experience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well explained the way that you talked about that resume that, you know, even working as a groom in stables is still going to teach you more about just horse behavior and just to get that more knowledge about horses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot about training and driving horses, which is something that I had not had any experience with up until that time, because I had been riding, riding horses, Arabians and and quarter horses. And so I had a great deal of experience doing that. But this, by working with the standard breads, that gave me just a whole new venue to look at and it was like a wonderful experience i mean i still look at it today and it's been helpful even in my legal work that i do i Mm, occasionally mm. get a standard bread situation and guess what as a result of it i have something to fall back on and say yeah i i understand what you're talking about you know it's Mm -hmm. not all foreign it's not all new it's all a part of that resume yep what about, and I'm sure there's been many people who've influenced you, has there been a standout, someone that you say, well, they were the one who put me in a general direction, or just tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's really funny that you bring that up, because for a long time as a young man, I had many doors open 
for me by people that I didn't realize that they were opening doors. Mm-hmm. And it took a number of years, and I have to say over the last 15 or so years, I finally woke up and realized that I had people that were opening those doors, making a difference on my life. And, you know, each one of them contributed differently to my career and to my life, you might say. And as a result of it, there's just not one individual, but I can, you know, identify a dozen or so individuals that made a difference in my life as far as my career goes or as far as my passion with horses and the horse business, you know, all of those, you know, there's just not one person that made a difference, but it was a combination of lots of people in many different backgrounds that influenced and supported me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been been very, very lucky. And I will say this, that, that as a young man, I didn't understand all that was going on. And as an older man now, I've tried to seek out some of those people and thank them. And unfortunately, my timing's bad because some of them have passed on. So my philosophy is is to try to help young people or people in the business as best I can. And that's my way of passing on the good things that, uh, you know, happened to me. And like I say, you know, it's it's strange how you don't appreciate things sometimes when they happen. <laughs> You know, it takes a year or two for it to to materialize, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I like your philosophy, you know, passing on your knowledge then to young people who may not even thank you at the time, but you know that down the track that they'll realize what a a bonus that you've given them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and most most of the young people don't. I know that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what about a horse who's influenced you? Has there been any particular horse that's a standout or has it been a number of horses? Oh, golly. I've been been very, very fortunate that at different times in my life, I've had a variety of different horses. And when I was in my late teens, my dad had a couple of Arabian stallions that I used to train and show and transport all over the eastern part of the United States. And, you know, when I look back on it, those horses made a difference. And then I've had other horses along the way, even have some here on the farm today, you know, that they just their personalities or uh, the way they behave and the way they learn all have had impacts on me, uh, you know, throughout my life. And, you know, there just hasn't been one horse or one experience. And it's like, I get people asking me, what's your favorite breed of horse? And, you know, it's a corny answer, but it's not about a favorite breed. It's about an individual horse. It's about, Mm. you know, something that that horse has a unique personality or a unique quality of confirmation that just sort of stands out. It It has a look at it with a presence and quality that you just don't find in any other horse. And so... You know, I guess I'm I'm reading the horses in their posture, their attitude, their body language, and so forth, and that in itself communicates to me about that animal. You know, and I enjoy. I have to be honest with you. I enjoy a horse that thinks. I enjoy uh-huh. a horse that that has a sense of curiosity. I have an Australian Shepherd dog who's smarter than most people that I know, and <laughs> and uh, 
You know, you just talk to her and she listens and she behaves. And I find the same thing with horses. If you spend the right amount of time with them and you work with them in such a way that you develop that relationship of respect and trust, it goes a long way. And unfortunately, I was also involved with training and showing horses where we had to crank them out 30, 60, 90 days because that's what the owners wanted and then we'd get a paycheck. But that's not the way to train horses. It, it really isn't. And, uh, you know, when I look back on it now, you know, if no, no animals or were ever hurt or otherwise, you know, I don't think traumatized by it. But I think there are much better ways to, you know, to handle training and understanding of horses. <laughs> Thinking about all the time that you've had with horses and being in horse-related fields, what do you think has been your proudest moment? I take a lot of pride in, uh, I, I don't have to have, you know, top billing for anything. I just like to see ideas or suggestions implemented. And, you know, there there have been a number of things, I guess, over my lifetime. I haven't really reflected on them before, in all honesty. <laughs> but I think I'm no different than anyone else's, is that when you have uh, put a lot of energy and effort into something, whether it's the training of a horse or preparation of a uh, educational PowerPoint or something that that's widely accepted, you know, I, I take pride in that. I mean, it's, it's important that you know, if I hear feedback that's positive, it makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like there's been um, many proud moments then. Yeah, I mean, uh, in my own little quiet way, yeah. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Now, I'd like to sort of go on to the legal expertise now and thinking about challenges that people have. And normally we talk about a biggest challenge, but what sort of problems are going to get people in court that you see people doing? You know, what what's some of the things? Because you're out, and you're, you know, at shows and you're at exhibitions and you're doing lots of things with horses all the time. Do you see people do things that you think, well, that's an accident waiting to happen? You know, is there something there that's a real standout that people just aren't aware that they're doing that potentially could get them in court? Well, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction, but I started riding a pony. I had a Shetland pony that I used to ride with a rope and halter and bareback, Mm -hmm. like most young people back in that era. And um, we never thought about the importance of a bridle. We didn't think about the importance of a saddle uh, and trying to have any type of safety helmet, riding safety helmet was not even, (laughs) it wasn't even thought about, you know? Yep. And the thing that I see today uh, in the legal work that I do, but also in reading, doing research on the internet is is that we ride here on our farm with, Rider safety helmets, we even used the new inflatable vest, and none of these prevent an accident, but they certainly will hopefully, uh, you know, ease the stress or 
possibly reduce the potential for injury if something does happen. Because the one thing that most people forget about is that horses are unpredictable. You know, they are, there are inherent risks associated with handling a horse. The number of times that people are injured just by leading and handling a horse on the ground, by being stepped on or kicked, turning a horse out in the paddock, for example, and not having the horse have its head facing directly to you before you release it. And it just opens the opportunity for the horse to cow kick, the horse to kick out, possibly to rear or misbehave in some other manner, not in a vicious way, but just feeling good because they've been cooped up in a stall or something to that effect. You know, there are just so many little things like this that we accept in our day-to-day activities with horses and that we just need to take extra special care that many times it's not taught And unfortunately, people find out the hard way. A perfect example is is that many, many years ago, you know as well as I do, you never wrap a rope around your hand, a lead rope. Sure. And as a result of it, one particular time, I can't tell you why, as many times as I'd been told by my father and grandfather and everybody else, don't do it. Well, the next thing I know, the rope is wrapped around my hand and I have three fingers on one hand dislocated. (sighs) I have to have them surgically put back so that I have full function of the hand. You know, silly things like that, and I call it silly or foolish things, is that, that people need to be aware and conscious, you know, all the time. I don't think they realize, and I know when I first started teaching, I never considered the fact that I have a 1,200-pound horse on the end of a lead rope, and I have students that weigh 150 pounds, and they're no match for their horse, for the Mm. weight of that animal, the power of that animal, and that people fail to understand the importance of that relationship of communicating with the horse, anticipating where they need to stand. Um, A few years ago, I even was trying to help a friend who was training some show horses uh, for in-hand presentation and confirmation classes. And um, I'm trying to show him where and how to handle the horse. And this horse just suddenly uh, reared the air and struck me in the head. And uh, this horse was vicious, unbelievable. And um, while I was being helped up off the ground, the horse came after somebody else and bit their ear and took it off. Wow. So as many times as I've been told what to do, what not to do, you know, and I practice safety and we do probably go above and beyond here more than what we should. But we just have learned so much the hard way that I don't know that that people just are aware of those risks that they have in dealing with their horse on a day-to-day basis. What's the answer there then? You know, because we already talked about having a lifetime of horses to get the basics, you know, the more you're going to learn and getting the basics and, you know, so what's the answer to help keep people safe, to help 
and and thinking about equine welfare as well because, you know, we could do lots of things to keep them safe, but that's not going to keep the horse happy. So having that balance between the safety for people, the equine welfare, what is the answer? Glennis, I think that we need to get back to the basics and teach safety. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I know in Australia that, that you have a lot stronger pony club system there than what we do in sheer numbers. I'm not saying we don't have good pony club here. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But I know that yes. there's many more of them, at least in my travels in New Zealand, yes. the same way. And I think that that is an important place for young people to have an opportunity to learn safety because it's a part of their their training program. Many, many years ago in the United States, we had a very strong 4-H program where youth were involved with horses. They're, it's still there today, but on a much smaller scale. And safety was one of the topics that was constantly taught. And it is something that is not popular. I can tell you because if I had the opportunity to make a presentation on safety and how to keep you safe while riding or handling your horse, (laughs) and then there was someone else talking about training or doing some other type of activity with horses, the safety would always come up last with regard to attendance (laughs) and participation. It's not a popular topic, you know, it's not fun. And somehow we need to figure out how to make it fun you know, from a teaching point of view. Yeah, good challenge, isn't it? How to make safety around horses a fun topic. It is. It really is. And I don't know, you know, even dealing with adults, you know, we tend to uh, accept a lot of things as just normal day-to-day activities. However, uh, uh, with all the young people and the amateurs that are involved with the horse industry today, we need to be more patient and provide more support and education. I see people at horse shows that I judge and I just shake my head and think, why doesn't someone, you know, tell them why they're not winning a class or they're not doing something correctly that would make the difference between being successful and being unsuccessful in the show ring. And because a horse show is not a teaching environment, it's basically a testing environment. So does that mean that we need to have more schooling shows? We need to have more fun days. We need to have more practice sessions where there's less of an emphasis on the bling, but more of an emphasis on the practical side of you know how to get the most out of your horse while enjoying the safe side of the sport. I don't know the answer to it. I wish I did, but I... I know I see a lot of different scenarios today that make me wonder. Yep, yep. Now, just thinking, and you know, you don't need to use names or anything else, just about a court case, something that just a small little tweak, like if you'd have just learned to keep the horse's head towards you as you release it or something like that, just, you know, some sort of a rule that would have made that court case go a different way. Have you got something like that? Yeah, over the last 12 years, I have been involved with over 60 lawsuits Mm -hmm. uh, at different levels, everything from testifying in court to preparing legal reports from which uh, summary judgments are made, that type of thing. And 
One of the things that we see a lot of in public riding stables is, is that the equipment is not safety checked. And I'm talking about looking at the billets on an English saddle or even checking the girth itself to make sure the buckles are working properly. The other one is we see stirrup leathers where they have not, the stitches uh, in them have rotted or the left stirrup is longer than the right stirrup because we're using it to mount in and they're not rotating the stirrup leathers and checking to make sure that the safety hook mechanism is working properly. You know, just lots of little things like that become in the United States grounds for a lawsuit because most of the cases that I see, we have a certain level of risk that have to be accepted to participate in the sport. But when someone is negligent in that they have ignored the rider's safety, they have ignored conducting safety checks on equipment, they have ignored to check and make sure that the throat latch is properly fastened on a horse. Or in driving horses, we have a gutter strap keep two horses being driven as a pair from rubbing their bridles off. Uh, I had a case like that once and uh, these horses took off in a parade. I don't, I forgot how many people were injured and then in the end, one person was killed as a result of it. Wow. It gets back to horsemanship skills and being totally aware of what you should do, you know, safety checking your equipment and, mm-hmm. uh, There are other examples where I can cite trail riding, large trail riding operations in our national parks I've been involved with. And people come there to a national park, want to ride a horse through the wilderness, and they have to sign a waiver. And in that waiver, they decide whether they're going to wear a safety helmet or not, but it's given to them. If they decide they don't want to ride with a safety helmet, they sign a second waiver. And the accidents that I have seen from there, and actually one was the death of a person, you know, they fell off the horse, had a concussion, and had to be helicoptered out of the wilderness and died a number of hours later. Mm, Would that helmet have saved their life? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Mm. But those are the, you know, I see those types of things. We have safety protocols that, that are in place in a lot of the public riding stables as a result of, of um, some of the work that I've done in that before they go out on a trail ride, even though they may be guided with wranglers accompanying the ride. You have at least two people checking the tightness of a girth at least three times before they leave the corral. That is a loose girth or a person losing their balance and the saddle slippage is one of our biggest problems in dealing with injuries today. And they're just common sense. You know, every time you get off the horse before you get back on, you run your hand under that girth to feel how tight it is. And you Mm -hmm. may just buckle it up one hole or you say, okay, it's just right and off you go. But there are people that don't know that. This all has to be second nature. It all has to be instinct, and it has to be taught. Mm, mm. I think there is uh, there is quite a lot 
to, you know, you think about things like that. And it is, of course, it's second nature. But, you know, there was a time when it wasn't second nature. And it's that grounding, isn't it, that people need to have. It is. And, it, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in uh, the UK recently is there are a number of people, because of the bridle paths, have to ride on public highways or public roads. And, you know, fortunately in this country, we don't have as much of that. But, uh, I mean, I have even seen cases where horses have been frightened by motor vehicles and riders in the end have lost their life as a result of it. And there's an awful lot of foolish things like that that happen. And then you take it to, to even another level, Glennis, is that you have a certain standard of care to provide proper fencing for your horses. And I have had two cases where the fencing was inadequate. The horses ended up getting out on a highway. And as a result of it, in both cases, people that were in the motor vehicle were actually killed as a result of the car and the horse colliding. So make sure you've got your gates latched properly, that you have adequate permanent fencing around the outside perimeter of your property, that if you're going to use electric fence or tape, that should be your internal fencing if you're going to use rotational grazing or something to that effect. But never depend on an electric ribbon or tape you know, as your outside perimeter fence. But those are all the things that we learned. Uh, or I see, uh, you know, as as faults of what happens while people are taking care of their animals. Mm. Mm. What about equine welfare? Have you got some um, things that you see that you think can be improved on there? The welfare issue is is a multifold issue, I think. And I will share this with you that we have in the last year and a half been looking for a, a new horse, a different horse, because ours are, we've got some pensioners and, you know, they're here till they die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, we want to replace them, you know. And we bought a horse based on his athletic ability and we got him home and found out that he had ulcers. Mm. That's not anything that you would normally look for in a pleasure horse in today's world. But the difference in that horse's behavior and his attitude and his willingness has changed dramatically. And in the last 12 months since we've had this horse, and it says to me that I'm not so sure that these people then happen to believe that they need to keep their horse in a public riding stable is always in the best environment for the horse because I don't think all horses adapt well to that environment. I think that their welfare is being ignored. And a horse physiologically was designed to eat forage. And a horse, we think, grazes about 50 minutes out of every hour. And yet, if you restrict the feed, you restrict the forage, the roughage in that horse's diet, and then actually don't allow this horse the proper amount of exercise, we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot more cases of, I'm going to call it mistreatment, inhumane treatment of the animals. It really bothers me. I have to be honest with you. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like it, and I don't like to see it uh, practiced 
good horsemanship goes a long ways uh, to keep these horses mentally and physically happy. And we need to be thinking about their mental well-being at the same time as we think about their health, you know. Yep. Yep. All right. Can you recommend a book for our listeners to complement their training? And you're not going to believe this, but one of my favorite books is comes from your part of the world on equine behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, McGreevy and that group have put together some wonderful information documenting horse behavior, welfare, and so forth over the past few years. So Andrew McLean as well? Is that yeah, Andrew McLean? McLean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah, Andrew. Yep. Yeah. That's certainly been, you know, one of our more popular books, those ones, yeah. And I, I have to tell you, if I were... I needed a textbook and I needed a ready reference for trying to provide information to someone. That's, in fact, it sits on the corner of my desk. I use it periodically as a reference. So uh, uh, I I happen to uh, be a strong proponent of that. But I also, just an aside, I collect horse books and veterinary books and farrier books and have for many, many, many years. And so I, uh, you know, I have a few others that are favorites of mine for different reasons, so you can imagine. <laughs> Wayne, what are you looking forward to now? If you've got projects, I know you're coming to Equitana soon. Is yeah, that right? I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm planning on coming back uh, to Equitana in uh, Melbourne in November, mm-hmm. at least at this point. I have a lot of, uh, last year was a very, very busy year for me. I was in Australia twice, uh, putting on an educational curriculum. Uh, I even went to South Africa for 10 days and judged and conducted educational seminars. And I was in Europe at least twice last year. And so I had been very, very lucky to have met and been exposed to so many different people in different backgrounds in the horse industry in different parts of the world. That's one of the things that I've enjoyed because the traditions of the horse business in Australia are very different than here in the United States. And it's I've learned a whole new vocabulary, you know, everything <laughs> from what a float is, you know, not a horse trailer, but a float, and, you know, to uh, what a ute is. You know, we, we have utes and floats, you know. Yep. You know, the history and the background and the uh, evolving of the horse industry is very different. So uh, I look forward to the travel that I have because I meet so many interesting people and I'm able to assimilate from them. Uh, It's like reading a whole new encyclopedia, so to speak, uh, learning from them because it's those experiences that make me, uh, so to speak, a better person sometimes. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that sounds good. And it sounds like you're certainly not doing nothing. You know, you're traveling a lot, you're learning, you're still doing lots of more experiences. Have you got a philosophy that you would like to share with our listeners, just something that, you know, like a parting message? Yeah, I think that's probably a a good example of it. Last year, we had a lady from New Zealand with us for two months. She came to us and she had a, she says, I have a dream that I want to be able to show my horse or show a horse in Western dressage. And can you help me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a matter of having a dream, you know, having some goals 
of what you want in the horse business. Don't take lessons for the sake of lessons. Take lessons for the sake of trying to achieve something, to be better at what you're doing, you know, and have some reasonable goals. That's important. I think the other thing is, is that people need to recognize that not all horses are capable of doing everything that we want to do with them. It's like we have a four-wheel drive vehicle to do certain things and a two-wheel drive vehicle to do other things. And there are some horses that like to jump. There are some horses that can't handle jumping. So why make that horse into a jumping horse? Why not find what that horse is best at and use that horse for what he's best intended. And one of the philosophies that I definitely have is is that people are trying to make horses into things, to doing things that they are not well designed to do. And that in itself creates welfare issues, mental stress, physical stress. It also creates issues for riders and their coaches and trainers. So... uh, you know, hopefully, you know, those are a few words to pass along to somebody for them to think about that recognize the talents and abilities of your horse and don't expect to do everything that's ever been thought of doing with a horse. Yeah, yeah. Now, Wayne, how can people contact you? Probably the best way is by email. I also do Facebook uh, under my name, but uh, that may be the easiest. And then uh, my uh, email address, which is my last name with the words A-N-D-A-S-S-O-C-S at AOL.com. And, uh, you know, that seems to work everywhere I travel. So we'll have those details on your page at Horse Chats, which will be horsechats.com slash Wayne Hipsley, or just go to horsechats.com and search for Wayne and you'll find those details at the bottom of the page. So sometimes people, I think they're listening to a podcast and might be riding or driving or something, don't have a pen and paper, but if they know they can go back and have a, a quick look at that page, that's good. Yeah. Wayne, I've got to say thank you, you know, so much for your time today. I think very interesting. I know you've got an absolute wealth of knowledge in quite a few different areas and we'd love to have you back another time so we can talk in a bit more depth about those areas. That would be really good if we could. So, yeah, hopefully that's okay. We'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, happy to do that. I even relate to some experiences over on King Island a few years ago. So that was Uh, Horse experiences, of course. Now that you've said that, you've got to give us a quick, um, you'll have to tell us quickly about the uh, experience on King Island. Oh, well, I was invited to come over for two days of trying to provide uh, uh, riding instruction and help with people training and riding their horses and ponies. And it turned into, I ended up staying four days. (laughs) (laughs) We saw, I think, just about every horse or pony on King Island. So that was (laughs) pretty much the way it turned out. And it was a lot of fun and a great group of people. Good, good. And the fact that you've you've planned to go there for two days and stayed four days, I think that always is the story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right, Wayne, look, lovely talking. Yeah, lovely talking to you. And hopefully we'll catch up with you sometime soon. All right, Bonus. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Hey, bye-bye. 
If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.